But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Cincinnati has started. Toronto and Montreal have ended. All on the same day. Yeah, we're not really here for Cincinnati yet. Like, let's take our time. These one-week masters, they hit different. I feel like there was a real narrative throughout the week. It feels like there was a lot of engagement in the Canadian tournaments. And to be fair, we have a bias because we're here and we, we see a lot more. But I just felt like social media was a bit more active. Hmm. I will say this about Cincinnati. A lot of our listeners are there. A lot of our listeners are excited to be there. So enjoy. Have a great time. Mm. I did not expect to feel FOMO for Cincinnati. And it's just because there are a lot of people that we know there or know online and I would like to see in person. Mm. Not really feeling nostalgic for Mason, Ohio. Okay. On day one, which was today, Sunday, sadly, Chris Eubanks went out in three sets to Ben Shelton. That matchup felt racist. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And to make them play on Sunday, why is the tournament starting on Sunday, by the way? And currently, as we record, Francis Tiafo is deep in a second set tiebreak. Actually, he has match point right now. He's up 6-4, and it's 7-6 on serving the tiebreak. Against Greek Spore. Yes. I know that there is a Dutch way to pronounce his name. He unfortunately does not have a recording next to his name on the ATP website. So I I don't know the proper way to say it. But that's a tough first round in Cincinnati. He's was uh, recently the runner-up to Dan Evans in D.C. A lot of tournaments have happened now since our last recording. And that includes the DC tournament, which we'll talk about later on in the episode. But let's start with Canada. Or first experience with the tennis was actually on site. Yeah, we went to the the free qualifying weekend. We went on Saturday, which they advertise as like family day. And they have a lot of activities for kids. And there's free snow cones and cotton candy and stuff, which I really, really wanted. But I just... Couldn't wait in lines that long for cotton candy. Mm-hmm. We walk into the site, and the very first voice we hear is that of Blair Henley, who is doing an autograph signing with... Andre Rublev. Yes. Yeah, so I'm standing there looking at Andre taking a few pictures, and whose voice do I hear but Blair's? And she's wearing all the latest Fila finery. They've always got her kitted out in the latest Fila stuff. Looks great. Said hello, took a picture, she posted it. Shout out to Blair. She's awesome. Cool. I know you told the story about Blair being one of the first people to kind of welcome you into the fold when you first did media at Cincinnati. It was like literally your first day ever doing press on the tournament site. Yeah, it shown up and it was, I guess, player media day where the top seeds do interviews. And I show up to the press room And Blair sits in the row in front of me and immediately turns around and introduces herself. And it was just very, very sweet. A kindness Mm. I will never forget. I really like the family weekend because 
you get free stuff. Not least of which is the free tennis. You get to see top players practice against each other. On occasion, play practice sets against each other. We saw a good bit of the eventual winner in Toronto play a practice set against Francisco Serundolo. And Yannick did not look good in that practice <laughs> set. So Right. As you told me, that Darren may have been working certain things. You know, the point of a practice set in practice isn't always just a win. It's about to work on certain strokes or movement or whatever. But I was like, oh, Yannick looks kind of slow. Um, the whole thing <laughs> looked very pedestrian for parts. And then you could you could see that both players tapped into another level when they had to play a, a tiebreak yeah, to yeah. end it. But it, it is a great event. And I'm sure a lot of you already know this. Like, if tournaments do a free or low-cost entry on the qualifying weekend, take advantage. You get to see players practice up close. You get to see qualifying matches with, like, a lot of these players are top 60, top 50 players playing qualifying. Uh, we saw Cressy. Marcos uh, Giron up close. Right. Apparently it's Giron, according to him. Oh. I thought I was saying it right then. I know. <laughs> uh, and the umpire was calling him Giron. Uh, Is it Giron, Giron, Giron? I got to see Garin, mm-hmm. who I've always liked. Uh, who else? Uh, a lot of people came for Carlos. He was one of the first practices up. We did not get there in time. But the place kind of emptied out a little bit after like two or three o'clock i'm gonna say this and a lot of folks may disagree with me think i'm a hater think i'm a nasty dark-sided person but you know that area for those of you who've been to the toronto tennis site where the majority of the practice courts are Mm -hmm. and they're named after i guess sponsors or whatever people donors donors who've given money to tennis canada or whatever and there's four of them i believe there's this one area where you can go and stand right by the front and sometimes players come over and do autographs but mostly it's you get the the closest view i am not here for little children pushing past me if i have made my way to the front of that line and just because you're a child doesn't mean that you get to have that experience and i don't i didn't get to have that experience as a child in jamaica so let me have it now that's how i feel I agree. I mean, if you want to push past me to get an autograph, I that's great because I don't. I'm not here for autographs. I, yes. But if I'm like, if I want to watch a player, don't push your child to the front. A lot of times, it's like the parents pushing the child unwillingly to right? the front. There were times back in the day when Federer was playing and Nadal was playing that they weren't even there giving autographs, but just the hope of getting an autograph, these grown-ass men would use their children to get to the front of the line, and you knew exactly what was going on. I remember Rafa pulling a kid out crying from the crowd because they were, like, smushed in there. Anyway, yes, you do do sound kind of ornery, but I I get it. Mm. (laughs) All right, so Toronto had the men this year. Montreal had the women. Canada has been, we've had horrible weather this summer. You saw it on full display this week, especially in Montreal. Toronto wasn't really derailed by the rain uh, because it was fairly intermittent. On the men's side... Look at you pronouncing your T's. Right. Somebody told me, somebody I know told me I sounded really Canadian. Um, And I was kind of offended because I'm not Canadian. You were offended. Yeah. I mean, I also don't really need to sound Rochesterian. What do you want to we sound like? We have a like? really distinct accent, as you know. 
which I don't, I don't think I really have anymore. Anyway, uh, the rain in Toronto was intermittent enough for the schedule to go on. Yannick Sinner, as you mentioned, won his first Masters title here against Alex Diemenauer, who actually reached his first Masters 1000 quarterfinal, semi, and then final. The men's side to me was, uh, I mean, it was not as interesting as the women's, but there was some stuff to talk about. Yannick beat uh, his countryman Bertini, Andy Murray, Gao Monfils, who we'll talk about in a moment, Tommy Paul, and Diemenauer in the final. And I have to say that I I have been a little disrespectful to Diemenauer in the past, actually quite recently. As have I. I, say, I think I said on the show that I kind of forget that he exists outside of Australia and the very short grass season. For some reason, like, I just have a block. On, I don't even dislike him. I just totally forget about him. And to be fair to him, he's had a really good two months. Outside of that very disappointing loss at Wimbledon to Berrettini, he was the runner-up at Queen's Club, at Los Cabos recently, and now this is his first really good run in a Masters 1000 tournament. And in the past month or so, he's had... I mean, these weren't easy wins, right? Over Runa, Paul, Annie Murray, Cam Norrie, Taylor Fritz, and then this week, perhaps the biggest one, Daniel Medvedev on a hard court. Another chap, another lad, who had a big week in Toronto, Alejandro Davidovich Fokino, one of your besties, mm-hmm. somebody who you have earmarked to go see in Flushing in a couple weeks. Uh-huh. Well, you told me that I should go watch him because he's exciting to watch. You saw him last year at the U.S. Open. Yeah, I mean, I was going to do that anyway. He's slipping and sliding all <laughs> over the place. You go and say you're on Twitter. I will not call it by that other name. You're on Twitter. I say this because I did this. I was trying to find a gif of Fokino after he won something. And I put his name in and every single one was of him sliding. And they were all unique hits, all different incidents <laughs> right. of him slipping, sliding, falling, chucking all over the court. Even if you if you just search his name on Google, just to find his Wikipedia or whatever, like the first images that come up are him toppled over or him talking to that little stuffed animal. He has a lot of personality. It's, he, a, it's his second Masters 1000 semifinal, first on hard court. This week he beat J.J. Wolf. That guy, 6162, <laughs> a delicious win that one he beat Casper Ruud I watched a lot of that match and Casper seemed to have regained momentum in that match stops and starts with rain delays that day as well mm. but Davidovich won the first set Casper went up a break in the second eventually won it had a lead in the third set and Davidovich did the business and that was and he also went on to beat Mackie McDonald easily in the quarterfinals yeah, but look at Mackie making a Masters quarterfinal. I mean, there are a lot of wide open spaces on the men's tour right now in these <laughs> there draws. Are. There are eight yes. spots in a quarterfinal. Somebody's got to fill them. <laughs> it was, this was a weird one. Uh, Tommy Paul beat Carlos Alcaraz. I pronounce that how Carlos pronounces it. Mm-hmm. In three sets in the quarterfinals. Gal Monfils is going to turn 37 years old on September 1st. He beat Chris Eubanks. He beat... Stefano Tsitsipas was the big one, right? He, who had just won Los Cabos last week, and Vukic to reach the quarterfinals here. Vukic, who has been having a hell of a year. Mm-hmm. A former college player, an Illini. That's how they say it, right? 
You know, I don't. I don't. <laughs> that's that's what their mascot. I is don't fucks with college college sport. <laughs> At the end of the tournament, Yannick Sinner is the one who is the champion. This has to be seen as a breakthrough for him. A third Masters final. He finally wins one. He's a serial slam quarterfinalist at this point. Mm-hmm. The knock on him being that he's maybe a bit fragile physically and mentally. I guess just fragile, period. Yeah. And he's been talked about as kind of the, the next generation of real champions. And we've heard this about so many players over the years. But this little triumvirate of potential, right? Sinner, Runa, and Alcaraz. Carlos is in a different league because he's done it time and time again. Sinner, I think this is eighth title. I mean, he's had a ton of success, but he's garnered this reputation of being a little bit fragile, as you said, like in the later stages. Uh, and especially against the the best of the best. Especially slacks. against Djokovic. Well, Let's be indeed. real. I mean, but most people lose to Djokovic, statistically. Sure. <laughs> I mean, he's also had big, big tussles against Alcaraz as well. He has. He's beaten Carlos before. Um, he's been to two Miami finals. I think this was really, really important because his draw wasn't extremely difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this was a huge opportunity for him. And he took it. Like, kudos to him. I, I'm i not going to discount anything based on, like, the difficulty of the draw. You still have to beat who's in front of you. I'm a firm believer in that. We had this next bit slotted at the end of the episode, but let's let's bring it here. What? And talk about Kasper Ruud. <laughs> because, for me, he had a hell of a few weeks off the court. He was giving many, many looks. <laughs> yes. Ahead of Toronto, he releases these photographs of this uh, what photographer or designer that he had worked with and it's him in his best viking regalia giving <laughs> utrid son of utrid looking like a snack yeah he looked good uh do you have something else to say or no no <laughs> um i'm just concurring okay then he gets to toronto and that same day that we were on site on the Saturday, he's practicing with Holger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're like, what's going on? New frenemies, new besties, Scandi crew. <laughs> then he heads downtown to Blue Jays Way to the Rogers Center. The Sky Dome. Can never call and it And throws Rogers out Center. the first pitch. And he throws a rifle. Like, he throws a bullet. It might not have been accurate, the, as catcher as, had, yeah. the catcher had to stand up to catch the ball. Because it would have been a ball, it wasn't a strike. Fine. Right, that's not a requirement. And it might, have, might not have been the most technical form in throwing a pitch that ever were thrown. I mean, it was no Mariah Carey in Japan. Uh, nobody could ever be better than that. But I was impressed. For somebody who didn't grow up playing baseball, obviously. It's not like he didn't stand five feet in front of the mound and throw it. It was a full pitch. At full speed. I was impressed. But then there was um, a noted bloviator on Twitter who took him to task about his form and how he needed <laughs> to work on it and blah, blah, blah. And Casper came back. Oh, Casper, Casper was saw not it happy. And, ooh, this person said, always amazed at how many elite athletes cannot throw a ball. Casper included. Cannot throw a ball. That's wild. I mean. Let's look at, let's look at the pitch again. Let's see how 
how terrible that pitch was. Did a little shimmy, took it back. Bam. I mean, he's not going to be the next Spencer Strider. Like, he's not a major league pitcher. Is he supposed to be Sandy Koufax? The assignment assignment is to throw the ball. The assignment is to promote the game of tennis (laughs) and the tournament that's in town. And he gave a very good account of himself. So Casper responded and said, what's wrong with the throw? And to that, he got a little wonky on the take back champion. But like Ben Rothenberg said, not bad considering you didn't grow up playing baseball. We can work on it in a couple of weeks in NYC if you like. Conversely, I'd be grateful if you take a look at my forehand. Ben was drawn into this because he was the one who tweeted the video of it. And so Casper says he, he completely just bypasses the pick me stuff, right? <laughs> He says, quote, a little wonky on the take back and, quote, cannot throw a ball. Those are pretty far off each other, though, aren't they? Why do people on this forum exaggerate everything? Very scary trend. <laughs> that, now that tickled me. That, that very, me out. very scary trend is doing a lot. That's that is drama. Well, this person was sufficiently gathered because he came back and said, fair enough. Sorry, my note wasn't intended to come across mean spirited. Okay, I mean, uh, what are we doing here? (laughs) What are who doing? We? You and I? No, what? I I just don't even understand this Twitter conversation. Like, your assignment is to put on the jersey, look cute, throw the ball. Check, check, check. You don't even have to reach the the plate. You just got to throw the ball. But he did. Take a little picture with Mm -hmm. the catcher. Um, This is why I don't like sports. Honestly, this is why I don't like sports. This is why I don't like... This sort of macho... I don't like men talking about sports. I don't like to talk to men about sports. Exactly. Except for you. I actually did grow up playing baseball, and I do not know how to throw a baseball. Okay? (laughs) And that's fine. My self-worth is not dependent upon it. Okay. And Casper did not stop there. He then proceeded to serve looks... Dressed up in his best hockey kit. Yes, they do on this the Sunday. Uh, on Sunday all the time in Toronto. They do like a little floor hockey on the court of Sobeys Arena, which you may also know as Aviva Center or Rexall Center. Can't remember what it was before that. And then after he won a match, you know, they draw on the camera. He does the most detailed Bob Ross painting. Meticulous. Of a I mean, meticulous. This dude is so Scandinavian. Like, even when he was interviewed at the Blue Jays game, or about the Blue Jays game, they asked him, like, oh, how was it? He gave a very detailed, very straightforward answer. It was like, you know, they gave us, wow, we had great seats. They gave us a lot of free alcoholic drinks and food. (laughs) And the the game was very long. You know, it was long. But overall, it was a very good experience. The dude is just, like, so, he will tell you the truth. He's only 24. He gives much older in spirit. He does. To be he honest. He certainly does. <laughs> All right. So great stuff from Casper off the court this week. Really enjoyed it. You did a whole thread on it. I did. And he heads to New York where he'll either lose in what? The second round or make the final. That's been the trend. <laughs> right. And he defended his finals points from French Open this year. And he has finals points to defend again this year in the U.S. Open. Let's move on to the women who played in Montreal. 
the Montreal tournament, the Banque Nationale something, Omnium it's called, this was like rocked by rain. I thought you were going to with wrecked. (laughs) This, the rain fucked up the schedule so badly on the final weekend. I mean, it was difficult all week, but the final weekend really influenced the results, and it's sad. Not to take anything away from Jessie Pagula's second 1,000-level title. Like, she earned that thing. But even she knows. Like, you could see it in her celebration after beating Samsonova. She knows that she had an advantage because of when she got to play. Mm-hmm. And that's just... It's nothing she did. She didn't do anything wrong. But the tournament and the WTA, I feel, needs to answer for what happened this weekend. Well, so she, she still beat Sviantek in three sets. Oh, yeah. And so, that's what I'm saying. Like, not to take anything away from what she accomplished. She beat Coco uh, from a deficit in the third set, beat the number one player, Iga Shantek. But why, why are you starting a match at midnight? A quarterfinal match, you're starting it at midnight, waiting for the center court to open up when you could have played on any other court. Rogers Court, which is the secondary one in Montreal, had been open for a while. You could have played it on court nine. Coco, for example, had to play Vondrosova on court nine, finished at like 10.30 one night, right? Away from TV cameras. I do not understand why Rybakina and Kazakina were waiting around so long to start that much, that match. We've, we've seen this happen many times this year already. I just don't get it. Like, how can you expect someone... I mean, had this been a quick match even... They would have been on court after 1 a.m. But this happened to be one of the longest matches of the year. Three and a half hours. Right. And we get the commentary that, oh, wow, what a what a lion-hearted performance. What a brave, courageous fight into the middle of the middle of the night. When in fact it should be this is absurd. This is unfair to the players. This is deleterious to their health, physical, mental, emotional, not a good scene. I don't know how many fans actually enjoy that. Like, don't you have to go to bed? I mean, uh, you have to be somewhere the next day. <laughs> if guess. I'm at tennis past 10 p.m., I'm annoyed. <laughs> I feel like I'm being held hostage. Right. Um, I'm sure a lot of the people there enjoyed it. But again, not the point, because there's nobody watching on TV except for diehards. Uh, the broadcast, they're not doing the broadcast any favors. And so, yeah, it was a courageous performance, whatever. But mes amis, uh, mon cher, why are they playing this late? Why are they playing at 3 a.m.? Why do they have to be courageous? I Like, because you're, dis- first of all, like you're disadvantaging whoever wins, not only for the rest of this tournament, but probably into next week. Like, you could be derailing their preparation for the next tournament. I imagine you put them at direct risk of injury as well. Yes. Having to get back to your hotel at, like, what, 5 a.m.? To then get up at a reasonable hour to keep your routines going, to play the next day. So, Rybakina pulled that out. It was neck and neck for almost the entire match. Dasha had match points. Both players looked like they had it at various junctures of that match those are conditions that dasha is going to love 
her spins were creating a lot of trouble for Rybakina. She wasn't like hitting through her like she normally would have or should have. And Elena has had her shoulder strapped as well. She then, the next day, is scheduled to go on later, the second semifinal, and the entire night session is canceled for weather. So now we're in a situation where, okay, she does, she's been given more rest, at least. But now you've got to go on first on Sunday to try to win your semifinal and then try to win the final. She blows through the first set against Samsonova and then she just really did not have anything to give after that. The fatigue, the shoulder thing potentially, and Samsonova kind of run, ran away with the rest of the match. Only for Pegula to then run away from right. Samsonova a couple <laughs> hours later when they had to play the final. Like Love and one. Why? Okay. These women who have to play their semifinal, why are you starting it at one thirty? Why can't you start it at 12? Or even earlier? Because you've given Samsonova only two hours before the final. Jesse, I mean, just creamed her in 49 minutes. Six, what, six love, six one? The reverse. <laughs> six one, yeah. six love. It was just unfortunate because there was so much great stuff happening in the women's draw. Like, I don't want the tournament to be overshadowed by this bullshit. But it's something that we should talk about because Rybakina was pissed off. And she actually said it's the WTA's responsibility. She said, I'm not even going to blame the tournament. I want the WTA to answer for what happened here. Because she said it's not the first time it's happened this year. She said she's now she's legit worried about her preparation for Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. Hmm. Well, this after the tournament got quite a few crackerjack matches early in the tournament. It did. We saw a resurgence of Danielle Collins. She won two qualifying matches and then beat Svitolina, Sakari, Leila Fernandez, and gave Iga a real contest in the quarterfinals. We saw Coco come off the back of that DC title, just running through Wimbledon champ uh, Vondrosova. That Sviantek Pagula semifinal was one of the more unusual matches you'll see. Uh, played at this level. Have we ever seen Iga get broken that many times? Uh... Iga was broken 11 times. And the reason it wasn't a runaway is that Jesse was broken 8 times. Did you mention the Sviantek muhava match? Oh, no. No, I didn't. Because that was a round of 16 match on Thursday. A rematch of the French Open final. And yet another match that was seriously interrupted by rain. Mm-hmm. Sviantek winning that one in three sets, just like she did in Paris. 6-1, 4-6, Mukova is clearly somebody who's going to be trouble for Iga going forward. She's going to be trouble for anybody going forward. <laughs> yes. Like, she hits shots that are just crazy. Shots that even surprise her. She's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna hit this backhand down the line and be completely surprised by how well I'm going to time it. <laughs> Right. I mean, the the backhands that we saw on display this week by her, by Jesse Pagula, and Danielle Collins, that like that was the story of the tournament for me. These backhands. It's the most important shot in women's tennis, I think. Coco's. Don't forget Coco's. Yes. What Ego was doing intermittently this week was, I, I mean, at times her forehand was unbelievable. Just unplayable. She was... 
until that semifinal against Jesse. Her serving occasionally was phenomenal. Her spot serving, especially out wide, like the slicing serve that she does out wide, really impressive. Doesn't even have to be that fast, depending on where it's placed. But the semifinal, like, so Iga has actually never done particularly well in uh, in Canada and Cincinnati. I think she's only reached like a, a handful of third rounds before. This was the first time this deep in the tournament. Clearly she had tough matches going into it. It's probably good preparation for the U.S. Open, even if she didn't win. Uh, but I, I wonder, I don't know, do you think she found her serving performance alarming? Or was it just like, I've had a long week, I'm tired, and sometimes it's not my day? I don't know, were there, were there any notes in that notebook that would have helped her to serve better? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, she took the book to the toilet after set one and came back and won the second set. You hate that fucking notebook. I, you know, I'm just, I'm going to get canceled if I say anything. <laughs> I just, I know that this is a common, everybody does this, as you told me. Everybody goes to the bathroom we don't. We obviously don't know if they have a need to go to the bathroom, and we should not interrogate why. But you just don't know why they're why she's bringing. Why is she bringing the notebook? Even Jeannie Bouchard, uh, who was doing broadcasting this week, she said, "I don't know if Iga's like on the toilet with the notebook or what." Like Jeannie, please, <laughs> Jeannie, please. <laughs> but um, and I think the thing it that just you bug, may- the bathroom breaks bug me when anybody does it. I don't. I just. It's gamesmanship, and obviously, I'm gonna tell you but why everybody bothers does you. It. I'm going to tell you exactly why it bothers you. Because you came of age in tennis alongside Serena Williams, and your entire love of tennis has been you being a fan of Serena Williams. And she never did that. Well, I think she did have notes sometimes she'd pull out. Yeah, right? yeah she had nothing notes. wrong with notes. She'd have notes or whatever. But she didn't take coaching from the stands. She didn't need extra help. She didn't need... To rely on anybody on on court, she she was there to figure shit out herself. Yeah, and that's yeah. something that you really enjoyed about being a fan of hers. That's right? something I like about tennis. I never liked when Tony Nadal was in the crowd giving all of these notes and talking constantly. I never liked it when um, what's his face Justine Ennis coach when she was constantly looking at him Sergio after every single point. What was his name? Carlos Carlos Rodriguez. Yes. Uh, and I don't like the new coaching rules. And I know that makes me a dinosaur at this point because it was essentially legalizing something that happened anyway. Some coaches are out there constructing entire points for their players. It's like, what? My point in bringing up Serena is that Serena would often be down in matches and you saw her figure things out herself. Yes. And that was something that you really enjoyed. For a lot of people, me included, that's something about tennis that I like. I like seeing players figure things out for themselves. Anyway. That's not what this is about. Well, kind of, because watching Ika do this, it gives the impression that she's less self-reliant than you would want or expect a world number one dominant player to be. Mm -hmm. Which I I don't think is entirely fair, because we've seen her figure things out on her own many, many times. Um, I just like, I'll stop. Because there's also some gimmickry as well, right? I think there is. Okay. Anyway. You have no idea how much work it took for me to draw all that out of him. Because he said he was not touching it. No, because I don't want to be accused of being an Iga hater. It's like, I I think we should be able to say things that are critical of a player without 
being considered haters of that player. I bear no ill will toward her. All right. Anyway, she comes back in the second set, predictably starts to rest a little bit of control. We get to, but Jessica's not going away. Um, I know a lot of people expected her to choke. However, we get to the tie break. Peggy goes up 4-2, then it's 4-3, and then in the middle of the point... Where did you come from? Where did you go? <laughs> the American High School line dance jam, Cotton Eye Joe, starts playing. What the hell? In the middle of a point. And so Chijak is like, let, let. And Jesse is like, are you kidding me? You can you can read her lips. Eek is probably like, what is this song? What kind of North American hell have I entered here? And this is happening in Canada? In Montreal? In Montreal? Not even Celine Dion, like Shania. Like if this no. tournament were in London, Ontario, maybe, but like. <laughs> right. You don't have to go as far west as Saskatchewan or Alberta. Um, and then it happened again. It, like seconds after the first instance of Cotton Eye Joe. Uh, so I'm not making the argument that this derailed everything for Jesse. However, she did lose the next four points and then lose the set. <laughs> But she had 4-2 and then and lost five points in a row. She upended the narrative that she would be the less steady player in that third set. Yes, because a lot of people checked out. You could see it on Twitter. Oh, I always she's always a choker. I always knew it. And she was the one to get the final break and win that match. Before we complete the women's action in Montreal, a slight follow-up here that one Francis Tiafo is through in three sets against Grigspoor. Ah, good. Jesse Bagula wins her second 1,000-level title. The first one was in Guadalajara last year. Third title of her career. And she's back to number three in the rankings. Let me go back to Danielle for a moment. I mentioned that she had this big resurgence this week in Montreal, playing a great match against Iga. The headlines came from her match against Maria Sakuri. <laughs> where uh, Maria kind of batted a ball back. It bounced on the court, then went into the stands. Danielle points it out to the umpire and said, did you see that? Did you see that? And Maria said, it didn't hit anyone. It, and Shut your mouth. I, I mean. Shut your mouth. Danielle escalated that so fast. Like, where did shut your mouth come from? Shut your mouth. Oh my God. I could not believe it. And so this leads us to a crossroads. <laughs> Tennis Twitter needs to decide. Is Danielle Collins a Karen or is she iconic? Because <laughs> the public opinion is volatile right now. It is. Danielle is probably the most amusing player to me because she is so divisive. And it seems that public opinion on Twitter flows uh, kind of erratically around Danielle. Because at first it was, they assumed, oh, she must be a Karen. She must be MAGA. Uh, conservative like all the other Americans. We don't like how she acts. And then slowly, Tennis Twitter decided she was a doll. Like well, she was uh, iconic. Well, there was also the bit where she posted something on Instagram, I think a story with her using a Donald Trump toilet brush. <laughs> To clean her toilet. 
And that, that kind of brought some people around to her. Yes. And she has occasionally talked about her politics, talked about feminism. She is a college-educated woman. And very few, I got it, like very few players bring that kind of brashness and that personality to the game. There's a laugh as well. Well, yes. The maniacal laugh. I, I mean, screaming come on in people's faces, the laughs. Like, Danielle has a lot of personality. She has a firepower in her game, which will bring people to her side by default. Right. But this incident with Sakari uh, seemed to swing a lot of people in the other direction again. I was like, oh God, she's such a Karen again. And I felt like, I think we've been here. I think to be... Uh, an observer of Danielle Collins is to be willing to roll with the punches. This was out of order. This was rude. <laughs> it was out of It was rude. Dare However, somebody tell me to shut my mouth. Well, be, until she said that, she was right. I believe that she was right. You know, I am militant about players hitting balls recklessly around the court. Right, but it's who she said it to that made it not a problem sure. for a lot of people. Had she said that, don't be no hoop for frighten, dare she had said that to Serena Williams or somebody else. Well, exactly as you said. That's a Jamaican proverb. You can uh, glean what it means. She would never do that to Koa Goff or Serena Williams or certain players. She picked on Maria here, I think. But when Maria said, well, it didn't hit anyone, listen, you know... Damn well, that's not the point. You should not be hitting balls around the court like that. Even if it didn't hit someone, it could have. And I don't think Danielle is saying, oh, you need to be defaulted. She wanted like a code violation or a warning. She wanted the umpire to do something. And I don't think, like clearly it wasn't a default situation. But I do think that umpires need to lock down on that stuff. Totally. Mm -hmm. Because what what if it bounced on the court and then hit someone in the eyeball? Like then that's a default. Right, but if you miss someone by a centimeter, then you've done nothing wrong. Right, you're, ex- you're explaining a lot of things that we've explained on the show <laughs> that everybody knows is totally right. <laughs> like we know that Danielle was right to say something. Okay, what made this situation explosive well, and noteworthy was shut your mouth. It was it was wild. Now that's crazy. But this is this is the package. Wozniacki's back. She is back. She won her first match against gospel legend Kim Burrell. And I watched that match and I was like, wow, I had forgotten. I had forgotten what it was like to watch Caroline Wozniacki hit a forehand on a tennis court. I'm guessing it's not rave reviews. It was not a pleasant experience. It was not a pleasant viewing experience. (laughs) The moonballing, kudos to her. A fantastic result in her comeback. I'm going to need to see a little ramping up of the aggression for me to mm-hmm. get on board with watching her matches consistently going forward. Yeah, which is famously something that Alina Svitolina has done. Yeah. She has changed her game quite a bit, and she will open against Alina Svitolina in her Cincinnati first round. Look at that. Coming up. She beat Burrell 6-2, 6-2 before losing to Wimbledon champion Vondrosheva. In two sets, 6-2, I believe 7-5, a tight second set, coming back from a big deficit to push Marketo. And I watched her press conference afterward. And again, I'd forgotten what watching a Caroline Wozniacki <laughs> press conference was like. 
where you're met with platitudes, where you are obfuscated, where you you're given trope upon trope upon trope in every answer. Wow. At the end of the day, well, so you know, from you. this, you know, as I said before, again, you know, this <laughs> and that. Uh, and you'd never get anything really answered. You know? uh, uh, she is a pro. She really is. I think it's important that uh, Marketa won that match. I, I think it's great that Caroline is back. She's obviously a phenomenal athlete and she always has been. I think some order needs to be placed on the comeback queens. There, there have been a lot of comebacks. I'm getting a little bit of comeback fatigue. I wish them the best, but I also want... Do you? Do you wish them the best? Oh, well, I mean, I'm... What do people mean when they say that? Not to get philosophical. Listen, I mean... the point here, and I think what you're hinting at is, we've seen comebacks now go spectacularly well. Where yes. Svetlina's come back and strung together some wins, and you're like... Oh, well, that was cute. And then she keeps on winning. And you're like, how is she doing this? What does this mean for women's tennis? Right, right. And what it means is that Elena Svitolina has come back better than ever. She has changed her game. She's doing great things. You know, this is Svitolina 2.0. I don't begrudge her that at all. No. And if Wozniacki were to do that, I wouldn't begrudge her that either. But what I saw at this tournament was Caroline 1.0. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? And now she's much older. That doesn't have anything to do with it. She was in great shape. She looked like she could come back and be a top 20 player pretty easily. Mm. But I have no interest in watching that, personally. Oh, okay, I see. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't. It's what matters to her. It does Like, the, what is the reason for her? I thought I would have been wanting to watch that. But that match against Kim... It was. Yeah, I'm sensing that it really wasn't your bag. It wasn't. It really wasn't. <laughs> Apologies to you're that very woman. subtle about Apologies. it, but uh, I, I picked it up. <laughs> Let's talk about this strange moment in Francis Tiafo's match with Milos. Milos has also had a comeback recently. He's beloved in Canada, obviously. This match happened at a Toronto night session, and at a pivotal point at the end of the first set, Francis hit a pass, but in the course of hitting that ball he touched the net however fergus murphy said nope no touch the ball is good set is over Both this was <laughs> deep into a tie break too this <laughs> yes. was like what 14 12 or something yeah and it was a it was a great shot milos is on his home court after years away from playing in toronto but this rule i think a lot of people myself included did not know this was a rule the players didn't know Tracy Austin didn't even know about this rule. Fergus did. Both players were yappa, yappa, yappa. He, Fergus could barely get a word, and I think he handled the situation admirably because both players would not shut up. Milos, <laughs> shut it, please. Shut it, please. And he kept saying, we'll get, we'll get to everything. Let me explain, guys. And he did explain. Apparently, in the doubles alley, that is not considered part of the net. That's in play. So if you touch it, you can still win the point. One of the problems is that the wrong sticks, I guess, were on the net. So it was misleading. Like the double sticks and not the single sticks were on the net for the mat. I, I don't even pay attention to those things, if I'm being totally honest. But a few people on Twitter noted that, that was confusing. The whole situation was very amusing to me because the crowd is screaming. Francis is going. Milos is yelling. 
And meanwhile, Fergus knows the answer. He knows he's correct. And he's trying his best to just explain why amidst all this furor. And then Milos is like, what the fuck? A net is a net. (laughs) That was so funny. So then Milos is like, well, I need the supervisor. Like, I need someone to come out and explain this. Oh, my God. Should we change the title of the episode? A net is a net, even when there's no doubles there. Oh, my. (laughs) That's really good. Uh, we'll we'll talk. <laughs> it's coming off the back of the Montgomery. A chair is just a chair, <laughs> even if there's no one sitting there. Milos actually did win that match in three sets, hitting 37 aces. There were some highlights for Canadian fans. That was one of them. Uh, Layla winning. The Canadian Gabriel Diallo on the same day beat Dan Evans, who had just won DC. Mm. And Gabriel said that this was the best day of his life. Peter Polanski is retired. Okay. Played a match in qualifying and is done. Okay. Yeah. There was, I mean, there was a lot of heartbreak for Canadian fans in that uh, Dennis was out, Bianca and Felix didn't do well, but there were other exciting things to keep up with if you were Canadian and rooting for your... Your home crowd people. Bianca is out of Cincinnati now with, uh, what is this, hairline fracture or stress fracture? Oh my god. In her back? There's so much. I mean, she says she's hopeful for the US Open, but... That don't sound too good to me. She cannot catch a break. Meanwhile, Felix, what is there to say about Felix? Uh, Felix is just, he's just down bad. He's been injured. Yes. No, he says he's not injured. And ahead of the Rogers Cup... (laughs) The NBO, he was hopeful that he could get his season back on track here. No, ma'am. No, it's too bad, too, because the fans in Toronto love him. Like, they they are ready to stand, right? When he came out for practice, people went crazy. Rewinding a week, City Open was a joint men's and women's tournament. Coco Goff wins her first title in a little while. Somebody who was down bad herself, not dissimilar to Felix, and she shows right. up in D.C. and... Hello. She, it felt like she had really unlocked something. The All of these things that we know she can do that she was having trouble putting together recently. And to be fair, she won Auckland this year. She's still a top 10 player. But this was something different. This is her first title in the United States. It's her fourth career title. And she gets through it beating, uh, what, three top 20 players, didn't lose a set. It was just cool. And it's cool to me that it happened in D.C., which is becoming like this headquarters of black American tennis. I have noted here on the agenda, suck it, haters. (laughs) Yeah, that's the extent of our analysis here, I guess. Maria Sakkari also did something, right? She broke that semifinal curse. You have been a big... Uh, I, I don't know what the word is, like an advocate of Maria because she does, she gets a lot of, of criticism mm-hmm. for reaching only semifinals. Right. Okay. What's the major difference between her and Jesse Pagula? Oh, well, Maria has made two slam semifinals. Mm-hmm. She's made a whole ton of semifinals otherwise. Jesse had two titles before this week. I think Maria has one or something like that. But yet you didn't really get that same vitriol toward Jesse. I mean, I guess people just mocked her for being a billionaire's daughter. 
That was the thing that yeah. was most on their mind. <laughs> Not the fracking. <laughs> but Maria got that much more than Jesse also because she made more semifinals. Well, yeah, she's more visible. And my right? point was mm-hmm. she's doing a lot of winning, you know, and so this was important to her to make this breakthrough. She didn't beat Coco in the final, but ahead of that final, after winning the semi, she said, quote, I really tried to block that semifinal thing that has been going on and on for so long and in every different platform, meaning social media. I just don't really care anymore. They have made YouTube videos of my losing semifinals. I'm like, whatever. People are just so dumb. And then some tennis Twitter people added the person who's made these <laughs> oh, videos no. on YouTube and they're like, oh no, she... And she... you know who it is. It's Sabine Lasicki fans <laughs> who is an absolute menace. On, I mean, but like an icon. Uh, but players do actually see those things. And well, because people are tagging them in them as well. Oh yeah. We obviously we know snitch tagging is not cool. Right? Maria's been in the top 10 for a good what, 4 years at this point. She's done a lot of winning. She just has had some trouble getting over that final hurdle. The other noteworthy thing here for Coco is that Brad Gilbert showed up in her team this week. And of course, we're at a position now where Coco has this great result immediately after Brad Gilbert has joined her team. (laughs) And now everybody, and them dead granny, wants to give Brad Gilbert the credit for this achievement. Right. But to be fair, I also saw a lot of pushback. I saw a lot of journalists and just regular observers on Twitter say, yes, a lot of people want to credit a new coach, but Coco herself has done this great thing this week in D.C., to their yeah. credit. TikTok Tennis was very vocal mm. about that this week. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being interested. Like, I'm very interested in this partnership. She still says, like, Per Reba is her coach. And right now they call Brad Gilbert a consultant. So they started on what they called a week-long experiment. It's been extended a further two weeks. Uh, we don't know if he'll be working with her during the U.S. Open. He's also working as an ESPN analyst during the U.S. Open. That doesn't preclude people from double-dipping, as you know. Uh, But I I liked what what Brad said about Coco. This is from a story by Greg Garber for the WTA website. He said, We haven't changed anything with the forehand. I never even say that word. And then he goes on later to say it beats you up, especially when everybody asks about the forehand all day long. That starts to consume you. Also, it tears down other shots when all you can do is fixate on one thing. So I tend to not fixate on it at all. Reba also said, her primary coach said, they've been working quite a bit on footwork to the forehand, but not the stroke itself. Which is what Renee Stubbs said in that video. She said, like, the actual motion is not the problem. It's the footwork approaching the forehand. Brad, I know he's been a fixture on the main tour for years and years. We hear his voice a lot, but he hasn't actually worked with a, a tour-level player since 2012. He's been a non-stop presence on tour for 40 years. Right. His playing career is segueing into coaching Andre Agassi. Didn't he coach Andy Roddick to at one point? He did. He famously told Andy to stop wearing the visor and switch to a cap. Remember? And he won his U.S. Open in a cap. Uh, <laughs> We've given Brad some grief for his nicknames and stuff like that. But actually, I do enjoy Brad as a commentator. Maybe maybe I shouldn't, but I, I really do. 
There is, what, one final order of business on this agenda, and it's a it's a bit of a mess. A couple of incidents that involve Dasha Kasatkina, whether she wanted to or not. <laughs> yeah. At Wimbledon, she was asked about uh, the WTA's potential foray into Saudi Arabia, and she said, quote, many issues concerning this country. It's easier for men because they feel pretty good there. We don't feel the same way. As Nick Kyrgios said, he'd be so happy to go there for a big check. For me, money is not the number one priority. So, oh, a few weeks later, this uh, Twitter account called The Tennis Letter, I'm blocked so I can't see it. Somebody else had to tell me what was going mm-hmm. on, uh, quoted Dasha. What What do you refer to this account as? Le- uh, a tennis quote mail account? <laughs> I'm already blocked, so I mean, what? I mean, you see it. You see all these accounts on tennis Twitter that just steal content. Well, they're not, I mean, they're not doing the reporting, right? They're just, they're sharing quotes. It's theft because they're sharing stuff and not attributing it. Well, or attributing it in a follow-up tweet. Which is not enough. No. And I mean, it's to to gather engagement. So Nick Kyrgios... Uh, apparently hadn't heard what Dasha said during Wimbledon, but he replies directly to the tennis letter with, quote, my girlfriend felt fine there. Shrug emoji. Well, whoop to fucking do. Wow. Good for you. Such great analysis. The woman who has changed, you know, you finally, finally found the right woman uh, who I guess you you treat better than the previous one. As Cher said, I found someone. (laughs) Oh, okay. <laughs> this was oh, this was so gross on so many levels. First of all, we know that Nick has a Trumpian level of sensitivity when somebody says his name. Because mm-hmm. this is weeks later. The insecurity. Weeks later. How dare Dasha use his name? Did you say you'd go there for the money and that you welcomed it? You did. She, she quote, said nothing. She quoted him correctly. Nothing incorrect came out of her mouth. Right. And so you've taken this opportunity to cut her down and to undercut her experience, to demean her, to try and say that what she claims is her experience is not valid. It's not. No, it's not valid because, oh, my girlfriend was fine there. Dude, you pled guilty to assaulting a woman earlier this year. Can you maybe like stop commenting on women's issues for maybe just a few months? Also, is your girlfriend a lesbian? Because right. that's the context that you've intentionally missed here. Dasha is an openly queer woman. Is it possible? Like, could you get into your head that it's possible that she feels less safe or less comfortable there? And also, it's just really not your business. Such a deeply unthinking, unserious, unsavory individual. I mean, the replies tell the story to me. Like, I guess that's the people he wants. It's the the Elon types. It's the blue check free thinkers who all agree with him, who say, oh, Dasha couldn't hold a candle to you. Nobody cares about her. You're such a superstar. Like, this is what this is about, right? He's no longer a full-time tennis player. He's a full-time social media troll. He's a full-time bloviator. That's the word of the day. I guess that makes us part-time bloviators because we have full-time jobs on the side. It just tells us 
that we can never be rid of Nick Curios, even if he stops playing tennis, because people, some people, will always want to involve him in tennis business. Always. And you see that sort of... And he will always want to involve himself. Yeah. And you see that, that really sort of striving, pathetic masculinity when John Lloyd says something like, oh, I don't see Carlos going out to nightclubs with a different woman on his arm every night like Boris Becker used to do. Like, dude, you first of all, you are living in a different century. You're living in the 80s. You have your name on a Wimbledon trophy because you were married to one of the greatest players of all time. <laughs> uh, and because of this old-fashioned... For a moment, I was like, wow, did he win a mixed doubles <laughs> title or something? I didn't quite see where that was going. But, but truly... True. What, this, this gener- what the fuck are you talking about? This Gen X into Boomer generation of male white tennis commentariats. Like, what are you talking... Are you saying, like, a male tennis player cannot truly break through to the mainstream unless he's uh, jet-setting and going out with models and womanizing? Dude, we just lived through the Big Three era. Are you making the argument that Roger Federer was not internationally famous? I mean, he was basically married to Mirka the entire time he was a top player. It is... But to to me... It is so revealing. That's the kind of... It's revealing. Sort of sniveling little masculinity that keeps people like Nick top of mind. Because they, a lot of people think, oh, we need that. You know, tennis needs that. It's revealing because it shows what's aspirational for these men. Mm-hmm. They're talking about things that aren't actually in effect what tennis needs. Right. Right. These are all hypothetical things that they've conjured so that they can dream the dream of what they wish they could do. But it's always like, oh, this is what tennis needs. Maybe tennis needs to uh, be on TV or uh, you should be able to follow it week to week and know who the top players are. Can we fix the access problem? Maybe we need to have... West Side Story battles between tennis players and pickleballers. <laughs> let's let's do that. You know what tennis doesn't need in my well, I'll save that for another episode. No, I want tennis to hear. does not need to complain about pickleball constantly because it's not it does not come off cute. And I don't care about pickleball. Like I am pickleball agnostic because what you will not see me doing on social media is constantly complaining about this other sport. Right, but there is some merit to it because Tennis courts and public spaces, and not just tennis courts, basketball courts are being overrun by these pickleball courts. Mm. I was on Toronto Island last week and I heard somebody from the US, I could tell by their accent, saying that they're going to go to this place and it's so great because they've just installed pickleball courts. (laughs) Okay, the problem here is encroachment of public space, not pickleball, in my opinion. Right, but if there's such few resources and pickleball is getting all of them, that's where I don't think there's no merit to it. I think you just object to hearing it all the time. Yeah, and I just think it 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 makes us look kind of pathetic. Well, all right. <laughs> Not often you get differing opinions on the body serve. <laughs> really? The other thing is Dasha and Yelena Astapenko were practicing together. This after Ostapenko appeared on Dasha's vlog series. So apparently, they're besties now. Ostakina, Dashapenko. Uh, I just, I remember. And they were doing um, 
some... Were they doing the hockey thing as well in Toronto? And they scored a goal and... In Montreal? In Montreal. I think they did a, a football oh, thing, like a soccer thing. Okay, yeah. And they chest bumped. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. That brings us to the end of episode 311. Maybe we should find a Venus Williams 311 reference Venus, for Venus Williams' the... favorite band. We just watched her Q&A on YouTube and she was so flummoxed by the person who said, well, you know Felicia Rashad, why don't you get her to hook you up with Lisa Bonet? <laughs> that was the most random question. She's like, why? For what per- What are you talking about? <laughs> she told us she's retired from doubles and that I don't know why people won't believe me, but I've played with the best. I've reached the summit. I've seen the view from the mountaintop and I, I shan't play doubles anymore as she said i've said this many times i must have missed it no she said it i didn't know that she said it before but only in like the last year okay since the u.s open Mm -hmm. last year when she played with serena she also said breakpoint was nice stories great gowns beautiful stories beautiful gowns um but she was clearly bored by it Mm -hmm. she was like you know I like a lot of reality TV, and maybe that spoiled my expectations, but I need to see some drama. And the, they were not giving me the drama. I mean, remember when Venus came of age in the 90s? Like, go read Venus Envy if you want that drama. Because the but girls can are, you imagine they're not giving if Breakpoint what they used was to. around and they were able to intro the series with the Spurlea bump? Right? Imagine. And then cut to she thinks she's the fucking Venus Williams. (laughs) They're just not doing it like they used to. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. Everything BodyServe related can be found at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. We'll be back to recap Cincinnati. Might be a short episode, that one. But we'll be back in about a week. Yep, we got Cincinnati coming up, and then we'll be doing a U.S. Open preview, obviously. That'll be recorded while we're in New York. And, yeah, God, New York is less than two weeks away. Yeah, it's ten days away. For us, at least. For (laughs) us. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.